Blog Talk Radio. To lift, to love, and to give, that is the question. But there is one thing greater to open up your heart and to let it sing. There's no wall, no barrier, resistance that can stop the great tide of the everlasting hope. So through it all, keep hope alive. Lift every voice
thing. We sing through the heartache, so sing and help us sing. Songs of all cultures, they help us come together. National language to love, the music is forever. As we march on, the victory is won. We still have a way to go, but yes, we still be done. Let's make the joyful noise, and let's all sing. We came a long way, so let freedom ring. Dallas. 
And I want to just first thank the men and women that laid the foundation that I may have a place to live. I'm talking about a super place that I can live in any part of the country I want to. I thank them for allowing me to go to the restaurant, any restaurant that I have a desire to go to. That was a time that we couldn't go to a restaurant. That was a time that we as black people couldn't go to and live in a desired area. That was a time that we couldn't even shop for cars that we wanted to buy, the high-end vehicle. Oh, no, boy, you can't come in here. You need to go to your own neighborhood and buy a car. Well, I thank God for those men and women that sacrificed their time, their reputation, their family, their finances, and they helped to allow me and you to sit up here and just reflect on how good God been to us. And we want to thank God for those patriarchs that went before us and allowed us to do what we're doing today. And now we're going to hear some uh, historical facts about black women in history. Sit back, relax, and all this is from YouTube. Enjoy. Be back with you shortly. As a young girl, I was not taught about what other women in STEM had done, even of color. And uh, it wasn't until I actually got into industry where I learned that there were women of color who were doing great things for uh, this country and this world. They never really talked about it when I was a, a kid growing up. Most of the sciences that we explored when I was growing up were male. And they were not women and definitely not women of color. The truth is, women of color have been behind groundbreaking American achievements for decades. Many of their ideas were used to launch astronauts into outer space, be launched into outer space, find life-saving cures, lead institutions, and so much more. While awareness of their longtime brilliance has improved, aided by the 2016 release of Hidden Figures, the conversation still has a long way to go. We need to tell these types of stories because diversity and inclusion matters. And young people need to see individuals that look like them doing STEM. I hope that the young girls who watch this video, movies, films, documentaries, are able to see in themselves an ancestor on the screen. I hope they are able to find inspiration. Wow, she did it. Let me try it. This three-part series highlights the remarkable triumphs of just some women scientists of color. Dr. Jewel Plummer Cobb, Alice Augusta Ball, and Evelyn Boyd Granville. Three women who made remarkable strides for humanity and broke boundaries in the process. Approximately 700 students registered for the fall opening, and so therefore, none of us stands above the other person in God's sight. Our first bigger rose to the top of academia and never took no for an answer. Women Untold, part one, Jewel Plummer Cobb. Train your sights on the laboratories of American industry to see what's ahead. It's a bewildering future, all right. One thing is certain. It is these research activities sponsored by American industry that have brought us this far and will continue to create further progress for us. Yes, chemistry has changed the world we live in. Jewel Plummer Cobb was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1924. The only child of a physician father and a school teacher mother and the granddaughter of a freed slave turned pharmacist. From early on, she was surrounded by academia. She was in early high school. She um, looked through a microscope for the first time, science class. And that changed her life because that opened this, literally opened this, this whole new world to her that she didn't know existed. And once she had, uh, had that experience, that really kindled her interest in pursuing some type of career having to do with science. Growing up, 
Cobb was no stranger to racial injustice. The segregated school system in the 1920s and 30s forced her and other African-American children to attend overcrowded and underfunded schools. It's been a challenge accessing equal or higher education just for the fact of being African-American. People that have succeeded, have really worked very feverishly hard in order to obtain their goal. And that's exactly what a young girl did. She worked diligently to remain an excellent student, and once at Inglewood High School, Cobb was placed in the Honors Track Program. In 1941, she began studying biology at the University of Michigan at a time when there were only 200 black students at the entire school. However, being a pioneer did not come without its challenges. Big Ten universities were still a disaster for black students then, and U of M was no exception. I was uh, forced to live in a dormitory that was segregated. All black students lived there. It became very difficult for me at that time. I didn't like the idea of being in, living in a certain part of the Ann Arbor where only black students could live. The problem becomes when your ethnicity requires that you have a lesser access to resources, which was mostly the case for people of African descent, with intent to hold a person or a community back. That became, became the problem. As a result, one year later, Cobb transferred to Alabama's Talladega College to complete her degree. It was there that she found a more welcoming environment, one that was better suited for her success. Unfortunately, upon graduation, her challenges were not exactly over. When she applied for grad school at NYU, she was initially not granted an interview. The school accepted her as a student, but denied her a teaching position because of her race. Fortunately, she was one of those people that very early on understood that no means maybe and maybe means yes. So she um, persisted in her um, attempts to get an interview and was accepted. And, and actually, she's the first woman of color in the United States to receive a PhD in biology. This was in 1951, uh, I believe. But they're on their way to new ideas, new things that will astonish us when they are announced. They are working constantly to solve problems and find ways to give us what we want. Cobb's first job out of university was at the Harlem Hospital Cancer Research Foundation, a commendable position in itself. During her time with the foundation, Cobb made remarkable strides for cancer research. She studied the effects of new chemotherapy treatment options on skin cancer, wrote multiple groundbreaking papers, and saw her work circulated in various publications. Her extensive work here ultimately provided the foundation for the future treatment of skin and other types of cancer. It was around this time that she had her only child with then-husband Roy Cobb, a son named Jonathan. She was, she, was a, she was a great mom. She was, she, was, she was very warm. She was very involved. She was fun to be around. So we did a lot of things together. She was, she was very active, very energetic. Plays, we go to movies and I would hang out with her in her lab at the end of the day sometimes and help out with taking care of the mice, uh, the mice which she used as part of her research. She became an administrator at various universities, including the University of Illinois and Connecticut College. Though, perhaps her most crowning achievement took place in 1981, when she was named president of California State University Fullerton the first African-American woman west of the Mississippi to lead a large institution. She was president for nine years until her retirement in 1990. The causes she really promoted, in other words, a major one was being research active and getting women um, acknowledged for what they could do as in academia. It's the kind of thing she would talk about at graduation and to when she met with smaller groups. She advocated for these causes she was interested in by showing her students she was interested in, by giving them research opportunities, by 
explaining to them the various steps that one has to take in order to achieve a long-distance goal. In 1979, she famously wrote, It is wasteful to neglect bright young female minds, which have considerable contributions to make in every scientific field. She really represents um, the classic example of going from a professor and then making her way up to provost and all the way to a college president. You don't really, you rarely see that, uh, particularly with women of color leading a research uh, institution. Because even today, you still don't have a number of, you know, you don't have a, a lot of uh, women uh, leading these uh, research institutions. So it's still an incredible uh, career milestone. For just the, the magnitude of how trendsetting she was in so many ways. Nearly everywhere that she went, she was the only um, woman of only person of color in the room, and more often than not, the only woman in the room. Her relentless career didn't go unnoticed. Her work led to numerous awards and recognitions. These include being the first black woman appointed to the National Science Board, a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1993, and over 20 honorary degrees. The progression of my ancestors is the American dream personified, going from um, being enslaved to being president of a major university. Cobb passed away in 2017 at the age of 92. Her impact, however, is still felt. Dr. Cobb working on skin cancers. How many people are being diagnosed today but get relief from their disease or their illness based on research that she did decades ago? I love hearing when people come up to me and say, seeing your mother's accomplishments made me know that I could accomplish in my life. She was just a really wonderful human being. And she was a real role model for women and not just women of color, all kinds of women. She showed what women can be in the way of leader, a leader. How I would like my mother to be remembered as um, somebody who cared, somebody who not only worked hard for herself, but worked hard for other people and was as concerned with bringing other people along with her than just in her own accomplishments. She always understood that um, we all stand on the, the, um, on the shoulders of giants. And you can't, you can't, you can't forget that. So you have to acknowledge that and you have to be a giant for the people. Washington in 1892. She was the third out of four children from James and Laura Ball. Her father worked as a lawyer while her grandfather, James Ball Sr., though her grandfather took many photographs in his career, there is ironically little pictographic evidence of the young Alice and her family. In 1902, her family moved to Honolulu, Hawaii, in hopes the warmer weather would improve James Ball Sr.'s diminishing health. Unfortunately, the grandfather passed away not long after the move, pushing the family to return to Seattle. Once back, Alice attended Seattle High School, earning top grades, most especially in the sciences. She went on to study at the University of Washington, where she earned two degrees one in pharmaceutical chemistry and the other in pharmacy. During this time, her work as a student began to excel, far beyond any barrier society imposed. Some stores refused lunch counter service to Negro students. 
she actually published uh, her research like in 1914 in a, in a journal of, Amer- of the American Chemical Society, which is a pretty prestigious journal to this day. You know, it's pretty rare that someone of color was doing research and actually publishing, you know, back then. And the interesting thing is that her PhD professor later in the College of Hawaii had never been published in the American Journal of the Chemical Society, yet he has his PhD in chemistry. Ball's career, however, was just getting started. She returned to Hawaii to earn her master's degree from the College of Hawaii, now known as the University of Hawaii, in 1915. Once she completed her master's, she was hired as a chemistry professor at the institution, becoming both its first African-American and first woman professor. While teaching, she began to research a treatment for Hansen's disease, an infectious skin and nerve illness more commonly known as leprosy. Leprosy is a condition that's caused by a bacteria, and it's a type of bacteria that looks like rods underneath the microscope and actually has a type of name called an acid fat bacilli. These patients not only have the social stigma of having things on their face, but they also get deformed fingers and feet. And then further along in the disease could cause permanent paralysis of that limb if it is upper torso, hands, and then the feet uh, would be disfigurement, maybe the inability to walk. Um, extreme cases would be amputation for these, these poor patients. Up until she began her research, Shamugra oil had been used to treat the disease. It was an oil derived from the seeds of a tropical evergreen tree and was usually applied on the skin or ingested. While there was some relief from this method, results were inconsistent and sometimes even backfired on patients. The problem with sugar oil is that oil, as you know, and water do not mix. And the human body is made up of 65 to 70 percent water. So when you put oil into water, you know what it does, it just stays together. So they had to figure out a way to make it so it could be absorbed and then become therapeutic. In search of a better way, Ball isolated the ethyl esters from the Shamukra oil. The result? A safe, injectable form of the oil treatment. In other words, she hit a home run. This ball is crushed. To accomplish what thousands of scientists from the 17th century onwards have been trying to do. And she did it in such a brief period of time, we're talking months, not years. To me, that speaks of a genius. And just like that, Ball, a young African-American woman, pinpointed the most effective treatment for leprosy during the early 20th century. Her discovery ultimately helped treat countless leprosy patients up until the 1940s when cell phone drugs were introduced. Ball's story quickly took a dramatic turn. In 1916, soon after her breakthrough, her findings still not published, she became ill. So much so that she stopped everything and returned home to Seattle. Only a couple months later, on December 31st, Ball passed away at the tender age of 24. The cause of her untimely death is not quite certain. While some sources report tuberculosis, Others suggest it was the result of a lab accident involving chlorine. That's still a question because as we've seen her death certificate and it is confusing. And it, I didn't know you could change death certificates, but it has been changed. Things have been crossed out. Different handwriting appears to add extra things. After her passing, College of Hawaii President Arthur L. Dean continued her work and soon the Shamugra injections were in demand all over the world. However, amid all the success, Dean never gave her credit for the discovery. Ball's name remained hidden from the world. And unfortunately, this theft was not the first of its kind. It's been a trend since the days of enslavement. We say that Eli Whitney created the cotton gin, 
Eli Whitney was the owner of the person who created the cotton gin. Latimer worked with, with Thomas Edison. It has been a trend for centuries, being able to be honest that this black individual did this great thing may be a little bit of a, a thumb in the eye to somebody who's been saying all for 100 years or 200 years, they couldn't do anything. It wasn't until a 1922 paper published by Harry T. Holman, an assistant surgeon at Kalihi Hospital in Hawaii, cited Ball as the mind behind the Shamubra injection. Slowly but surely, she's received the recognition she was due. In 2000, almost 90 years after her discovery, the University of Hawaii honored Ball with a plaque mounted on the only Shamuva tree on campus. And in 2007, they awarded her with the Regents Medal of Distinction. Moreover, in 2016, she was named by Hawaii Magazine as one of the most influential women in Hawaiian history. She had lived, I mean, like the world was open to her. She could have done anything. Uh, probably even gone on to win the Nobel Prize. She died so young and was not able to really see the impact uh, of her work because thousands of people, you know, benefited from her uh, from her discovery. Before they found the treatment, people would die, and they would die with a lonely guy. I think what Alice provided to the whole world. Not only to these patients, and for the first time, they're going to be released from a death sentence. But she gave hope to them. But I think she also inspired other doctors and researchers to double down and say, oh, this is not an incurable disease. It can be treated. So I think what she gave the world for a first period of time was hope. Oh, uh, what a great, what a great, great documentary that we had on two women scientists and patriarchs, and and definitely some uh, very informative. You know, if we think about cancer treatment, you know, people right today have been suffering from that dreadful disease, but yet there was women some some time ago, early in the stages of development, and the research and treatment was involved in a jewel car. She worked tirelessly in the lab and uh, working on a cure for cancer of all sorts, skin cancer and other cancer ailments and stuff and, and how she was uh, being recognized, but it was a challenge. People told her that she couldn't do it. People told her that she won't, that she ought not do it, but she kept on anyway. I love that right there because right today, I bet somebody told you you couldn't do what you do. I bet today somebody told you to stop doing what you're doing, but yet it was so embedded in you to do what God had put in your hands and your heart to do. And I say that all the time because we can't do anything apart from God. Remember being free on the inside. Don't give you the right to just do your own thing, but give you the right to help someone else, encourage someone else, to uh, to uh, allow someone else to reach their goal, amen? Because guess what? When they go, you go, amen? And also with Allison, Allison Ball, you know, how she's a very young lady. She uh, treated the uh, disease we call leprosy. You know, we know about leprosy. Leprosy was a, a disease that it wasn't no cure for at the time. When you had leprosy, they had to put you out the camp. As I say, when you had leprosy, didn't nobody want to deal with you. But yet, this young lady, in her 20s, she went and she was uh, was treating elder. But can you imagine, you 20 years old, you looking good, you you know, everything's around you, you're vibrating, but yet she wants to go down there and work on people that have leprosy. And you're going to just take the the resources that's available now, and you're going to just do some research, and you're going to try to expound on it and make it better. You know, I got to think about today, in today's time, during this time of pandemic, and, and things are not uh, 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 going on, uh, things are going on that we're not familiar with. But, yeah, we got people that's working on that, people that look just like us. We won't never hear about it until about 50 years later, they'll say, yeah, Dr. So-and-so. He helped advantage, you know, the building blocks for this dreadful pandemic that we had it, it, uh, for two years, and he was a black man. Well, I did not know that, you know. You know, and, and this woman scientist that, that helped invent these things here, they was a black person. You know, so I don't. I want you to realize that we're at every level of life and success. We may not get that recognition, but we're still working tirelessly. Some people are never 
uh, have their names in life, up in life so people never get that recognition. But God knows. I'm going to break here for a minute because we got another interview coming up here with uh, Black Women in, in History, the Untold Story. And I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to it because it encouraged me. It encouraged me. And if you'd like to lend your voice to this program, that number is 310-982-4126. You too can give us a, a part of your black history and what uh, went on in your life, how the things that you're involved in now, how you're standing on the shoulders of someone else. We're going to uh, open up the phone lines here for a second, and we're going to speak to our first caller here, we Brother Daniel. Good morning, there, Ricky. Good morning, top of the morning to you, Brother Lewis. How you doing today? I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you for being a part of it, man. We started off this month of February with a, with a Black History Facts, man, talking about black women in science, man. That's awesome, man. I did not hmm. realize that there was a black woman that treated leprosy, man, and she was in her 20s, but she worked tirelessly to find a cure for leprosy. Can you imagine that? Leprosy was like AIDS, man. When you had that, you want to stay away from people. And you want people to stay away from you. But yet this young lady, she found it in herself to uh, to get a cure for that. She died at an early age, but what she worked on is steady alive. It's alive today. Her research is a paper, and her research work goes on. And guess what? We have a lot of black women and men that's involved in this cure for uh, this coronavirus that's uh, plaguing the world. We have a lot of black people that's involved in the research and development, from the packaging to the shipping. Can you imagine if I had been a black man and said, hey, I know how to get this thing that's supposed to be in sub-temperature. I know how to get it from California to New York without it spoiling. Can you imagine that? We might not never know about it. Hey, I know how to give, I know how to package this stuff so we can get the maximum amount of doses in a in a and in a ship. We may not ever know that. But guess what? If somebody a color has something to do with that. It was nothing else but driving the truck, say, Hey, I know a shorter route. Let's go this, this and yeah, but you got you know, black history. We might as well just uh, uh, just get as much of it as we can and live it to its fullest. And thank God for the uh, men and women that we stood on their shoulders, man, to be all that we could be. And we got some more interviews coming up here shortly, Brother Daniel. So uh, uh, you care to say a few words before we go to our next interview regarding our black women? Well, I was saying that uh, I did a little, you know, studying about it and research of it. And one of the other things I found out is that most black women, and I'm going to say this, you know, back in the most early 30s and 40s, you know, men mostly couldn't go to school, you know, and go to college. And so most of the women mostly were the ones that could uh, go to college and get an education. And, uh, I would say like this, uh, the white people basically would trust the women in going into the offices and in the, in the schooling before they would the men, you know. And uh, so uh, I look at uh, this movie called The Hidden Figures. You, you seen that movie? Yeah, I, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, all these black women were, uh, they were engineers with NASA. And what happened was they couldn't they couldn't really get a job, but the other scientists kind of leaned upon them to give them their calculations because they couldn't do it themselves. So, you know what I'm saying? But then again, they couldn't acknowledge that these black women were doing their work. You know? <laughs> yeah, these black women were doing their calculations, you know, engineering calculations, you know. Every one of those engineers, they got to calculate all these different, you know, calculations. If they get wrong, the rocket might crash into the the the, the, the land instead of going off in the ocean. You know what I'm saying? Before um, yeah. it go yeah, up, yeah. it might blow up. You yeah. know, and so they had to make sure these calculations were right. You know? Yeah. You know, that's how that's so, quite I understand. So, 
taking too, but because uh, you know they didn't have to calculate like we had today. They had to do all those things in their head. So you they had to do all in their mind. Yeah, true. No, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. So it is quite a bit. Uh, and brother, Dan, you hit on something there. You hit on something there because you know what? Today, even today, a lot of the women could do stuff that men can't do because of the uh, 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 because of the danger of it. The women could. Uh, but then again, they they treated women just as bad as men in some instances. Yeah, women could go yeah. And do you know, you know, uh, like, I saw, I saw a story the other day why uh, one of the main things the men most of them growing up they had to take care of the family. You know, mostly the only work back in the early, you know, I would say about thirties or forties and depression days and and kind of like in the forties, the men had to work. And most of these southern states, you know, they were farm states. And most of the young guys had to be the breadwinner of the family. And so that means they had to work on these farms, man. And that farming work is some yeah. hard work, Joey. Yeah, and that's true, though. Yeah. A lot of them did, uh, a lot of them went on and done, uh, you know, did the protesting and the sift and the, uh, yeah. and, and they did the protesting anyway, because it takes a, a special breed of person to do that. Look past their own self because their life was in jeopardy, man. You go protesting in that night, a, a group, a, a, a group of men to come by your house in a truck with hoods on, threatening you because what you done in the middle of the day. So a lot of times you had to be very mindful of your family, and so a lot of the women yeah. took up on those roles too. They said, "Hey, we gonna go protest in the homes and at the stores. Hey, my man can't do a yeah. certain thing, but I'm gonna stand in the gap for him when I'm at home fixing this people." lunch and watching their kids. I'm going to say, hey, you know, my husband went to jail for protest. Oh, your husband, really? You know, I might not go to work. I need to stay home. Well, we got to let you stay home. So let me call, make a phone call and say, let old John out of jail. And y'all don't be so hard <laughs> out here because his wife work for us. Yeah, that's where it goes. That's where it goes. That's where it went. <laughs> you know, yeah. 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 And, and let me go ahead and yeah. finish this here interview, man. I think it's very important for us to get this out because in the midst of what we're going through today, it's good to know, man, that we had a hand in all that. And we, we know we got a hand yeah. in it, but sometimes we, we forget. So we're going to continue this interview, and I'll be back with you shortly. All right. Thank you. Our final figure is a mathematician who helps NASA make critical advances three different times. Women Untold are three Evelyn Boyd Ramsey. Born in Washington, D.C. in May of 1924, Granville was the youngest child of Julia, a homemaker, and William Boyd, a chauffeur. Growing up, Randall lived in a segregated society. Limitations were imposed on African Americans in all respects. She herself attended colored-only schools in Washington. However, at Dunbar High School, she encountered teachers dedicated to counteracting any messages that society threw at their students, inspiring them to work hard and go on to college. When they're especially getting messages that you can't do this, this isn't for you, Somebody out there, that, that one person that says, how many things you can't do? Do you think you can't do this? I think you could do it. Um, that, can, that can be so not only eye-opening to the child who's never heard anything positive, that can, it can seem like something small. It can be that one person who just sort of almost offhandedly says, oh, you're interested in being a scientist? Yeah, sure, you could be a scientist. Why not? That could be the thing that that makes that child go, yeah, I could. With confidence, Granville enrolled at Smith College, a private institution for women in 1941. As an undergraduate, she majored in mathematics, though also studied theoretical physics and astronomy. She graduated from Smith College, summa cum laude, the highest distinction in 1945. Granville decided to continue her studies and applied for graduate school at both the University of Michigan and Yale University. She was accepted to both, though chose Yale, which offered her a full scholarship. Hilda Bryant, executive of Phi Delta Kappa National Sorority, presents the medal to Evelyn Boyd. 
In addition to the medals, Miss Boyd, a Washington, D.C. girl, wins a scholarship to Yale University. In 1949, with a thesis entitled On Laguerre, Series in the Complex Domain, Granville became the second African-American woman in the U.S. to earn a Ph.D. in mathematics, second only to Dr. Euphema Lawson Haynes, who earned a Ph.D. in mathematics in 1943. Granville's professional career skyrocketed in January 1956, when she accepted a position at the International Business Machines Corporation, also known as IBM. IBM was huge. They were the computer company, and they were before that they were the... Um, electric typewriter company in, in the 1960s. They were very big. They had a computer or a typewriter called the Selectric. It probably compares to Apple because everybody knew IBM. Their name was on their um, printers. Their name was on their typewriters. Their name was on the computers. If you worked for IBM uh, writing computer programs, that was a very, very um, prestigious job. Soon after she joined, IBM secured a contract with NASA. The company was tasked with ensuring the upcoming Project Vanguard success in space. Project Vanguard was our first artificial satellite program. We lost the space race to the Russians. In the fall of 57, they put up Sputnik and Sputnik 2, and we're launched into the space race. And we take satellites for granted nowadays. We've got GPS that lets us call up a car and pick us up at our house. Uh, but at that, at that time, we had no artificial satellites up there. So Vanguard was the name of the program where we were trying to put them, launch them, and then put them into orbit. Granville, in New York at the time, writing computer programs for the IBM 650, immediately requested to join the project. The request was granted, and she transferred to NASA's Real-Time Computing Center in Washington, D.C. There, she was instrumental in developing orbital calculations for the satellite. In 1960, with one NASA mission under her belt, she moved to Los Angeles with her then-husband, Reverend G. Mansfield Collins. In L.A., Granville joined the staff of the North American Aviation Company as a research specialist. The NAA was soon awarded a NASA contract for the design of the space vehicle and Project Mercury. Later on, they'd be in charge of the same for Project Apollo. Project Mercury was now part of our manned spacecraft, so we put satellites up. But again, we lost the space race to the Russians. Yuri Gagarin made one orbit around. So uh, Mercury was our first manned space flight. We had some suborbital, which would mean it would launch off the Earth and get out of the atmosphere, but then come right back down again. Uh, the Russians put up another person into a single orbit. And then finally, we got John Glenn to be able to go three times around in orbit. The Apollo missions were the famous ones. They're the man on the moon. So the project was launch three people, put them into orbit around the moon, separate from that uh, orbiting capsule, land on the moon, lift back off again, collect or connect back again, and then come back to the Earth. So to put a man on the moon and return the men from the moon. Granville's computational work for the NAA would go on to ensure that American astronauts would land first and safely on the surface of the moon. Granville remained on Project Apollo until 1967. In 1989, she wrote, I can say without a doubt that this was the most interesting job of my lifetime. To be a member of a group responsible for writing computer programs to track the paths of vehicles in space. Now what's interesting about uh, Dr. Evelyn Boyd Granville is that her story is related to the movie Hidden Figures. And because, you know, that movie, as you know, focused on women that were actually working as computers uh, at uh, NASA. So she was able to use her mathematic ability, you know, to help uh, get mankind into space. Over the course of her career, Granville held numerous positions in academia, government, and industry. She taught mathematics at Fisk University in Nashville, California State University, as well as Texas College in Tyler, Texas. She also worked as a mathematician at the National Bureau of Standards in Washington, D.C., focusing on calculations for the development of ballistic missiles. After her retirement in 1997, she spent a lot of her energy encouraging mathematics education at all levels. She traveled across states to speak to middle school children about the importance of math and even returned to Yale University to lecture on how to best teach mathematics. 
Today, Evelyn Boyd Granville is living in Washington, still always active in attending engagements according to reports. In a 1990 video. Uh, what a great video that we had, a great documentary by Mrs. Granville. Uh, you know, she I've seen them pass now, but yet she was the key figure in this movie, uh, hidden figure. And let you know that, you know, black people, we've been involved in all these things. You know, it wasn't for our gift and our talent to help get man establishing space there. It was a black woman, <laughs> along with black men also, but it was a black woman that we're, uh, that we're featuring today. And also, we got a very special interview and documentary. And now, all our stuff come off YouTube now. We're... Uh, we're able to use these things, but we're giving them all the credit for it, okay? We're just able to uh, just share it with you. It's called Shareware, so we're sharing it with you. But I would like to just give you something regarding Dallas. You know, there's a lot of history going on in Dallas there. And we have a uh, a, a young man that we're going to uh, – uh, I call everybody young fans, but uh, Dr. David Shaw. Dr. David Shaw, he's going to give us a historical facts regarding Dallas, and we're going to just jump right into the middle of the interview here. And uh, allow you to just catch on to it, and then we're gonna come back with you, Charlotte, closing it out again. That number to call in to the program is three one zero nine eight two forty one twenty six. We on every Saturday morning from eight to nine. They twice you're here would be Doctor David Shaw. Because nobody uh, just dreamed we would have no black on radio in nineteen forty nine. For real? What, yeah. What happened is a friend of mine. We were listening to the ball game. And and uh, I say, do you know that that's God McClendon who recreated the baseball? He said, no, that it just they, they some kind of way uh, uh, they either gave pictures of it or uh, some kind of recording. I said, no, man. He said he got the sound and all that in there, and he's going with his voice up and down. Now, he said, no, no. I said, I bet you five dollars. Mm. He said, okay, we go over. Why God McClendon is recreating those old ball games they had in the, in the 1900s or early. And the, the receptionist let us go in and sit in the little studio and look at it through the window. So when he got off, he said, Well, how do you young boys think I did? I said, You know what? Mr. Clinton, you did a wonderful thing. Did you know you got listeners? And I tell you, people, I said, Well, let me tell you something. All of your listeners, when you get off, you got this radio station. You put these classical music in there. I said, all the Negroes, because that's what we were called. Right? Mm-hmm. All the Negroes put it on something else. So they tried to find some music that they liked. It wasn't too much about something else. But let me tell you what you ought to do. I said, you ought to get somebody to play records that Negroes like. Mm. Like Matthew and Cole and people like that. And uh, Louis Jordan and all that. He said, that would really, really be good. So I kept talking to him. I said, you really ought to do that. He said, you know what? If I could find somebody to do that, I really would. I said, but, you know, you're finding somebody. They have to know how to operate the controls, and they have to get their own music, and, and they have to sell all the spots for going. I said, look, I can do everything. And he said, you know what? I really believe you to do that. <laughs> you didn't convince me. He said, I tell you what, we're going to try it out. And you put it together, and I'll put you on. That's how I got over here. Just like that. Just like Divine. That. Yeah. Now, let me ask you one more question. Yeah. Bill Blair, you remember Bill Blair? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was my friend, too. When Bill started his uh, little paper, he was having a lot of hard, hard time. And I had an office, I had a janitorial service. And Curtis Coates and I had a little construction company where we do Adams and all that stuff in South Dallas. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I found out that he was having trouble. And so I told him, I said, look, you come on over and I'll give you a room. We had over on Hatching. And I gave him a room and for about six, uh, six or eight weeks. He, he, was he, he did his paper over that. So I knew Black. He knew me real well. That's good. That's good. We talked about Negro baseball a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, he he knew me real, real well. That's good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he uh, he was real, really part of him for a long time because of the baseball career that he had. And he really was a nice guy. He he just believed in us like I do. Right. What about Al Liskum? Uh, Al Liskum was 
uh, a guy that wanted to do something for Dallas and he didn't know how, so he started demonstrating and all that kind of right. stuff. And uh, he he flew around and got them to change uh, the number of people that was on the on the, the uh, city council and all that. And he was one of the first groups that got on that. But before then, uh, Mr. Galloway, I was president of uh, the Pylon Fellowship Club. You kidding? No, I, I was I, I was one of the. Uh, uh, the uh, organizers of that first. That is amazing. Yeah. And uh, I had a lot of influence with the males and all that. And so I was running my janitorial service and they said, well, we're we getting ready to put somebody on the city council, but at first, we're not going to do like everybody else to get them elected. We're going to uh, just put one on there and uh, the council agree with that. And uh, they said, we would like for you to do it. I said, look, I don't have time to do that. He said, well, who's your? I said, I think you ought to do Mr. Galloway. He knew a lot of people in here. He was real, real popular. And they said, okay, if you think he'd be all right. And that's who they put on that first. All right. See, I, I, I actually got involved with Pylon Salesmanship Club a little yeah, bit, too. Yeah, you yeah. It must be after I left. After you had left. Yeah. Uh, I got something. Let me show you. Uh, you. You know, I'm a dreamer. But when I dream a dream, I try to make the dream come true. Okay. And uh, Mayor Eric Johnson, that owned Texas Instruments, he and I got to be real, real good friends because I worked with him on the goals for Dallas. And this was where he would have citizens come to a meeting and tell what they would like to see Dallas do. Right. And he was, he was a people person. And after I started doing that, we got to be real, real good friends. Man, this is history. Yeah. And uh, he told me, he said, well, I, I tell you what, uh, I would really like for you to be on the Goals for Dallas. And I was on the Goals for Dallas. And, and, and let me tell you, one of the strangest things that happened, this is what put me in the position of knowing this was divine intervention. The blacks in Dallas did not want to vote for the Crossroads Bond Program. It was going to be a DFW. At that time, it was going to be the largest airport in the world when it was complete, and it was. And also, the new city hall was in that same uh, program. And he found out that some of the preachers didn't want to vote for it because they said it wasn't going to benefit us at all. They were going to build a lot in North Dallas and if we might have a few jobs and that, but that's not going to help us. And so we just not going to vote for it because they don't put nothing out here in, 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 the, in the bond program for us. And so Mayor Johnson called me. He said, Dave, I think he said, well, oh, come on. I want you to, 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 to think about something for me because I found out that a lot of the preachers and the community themselves wasn't going to vote to put the airport in. I said, really? He said, yeah. And so when I went out there and told him, he said, you know what I would like for you to do? He said, I would like for you to find intelligent people that you know, some of the doctors and the lawyers like Dr. Flower and, and Dr. Pinks and all that. He said, just ask them why is it they feel like the majority of the blacks don't really want to work uh, and vote for the crossroads bond program. I went out, and I had some people on the street, some from the beer chapters and all that. We're going to end that interview right now here with uh, Mr. David Shaw. And you come back and get a real better story. Uh, and we're going to open up the phone line right here just for one moment. We can really get on out of here, but we pray that you enjoy our documentary uh, off of YouTube regarding some of uh, uh, black women in history and also a short interview with Dr. David Shaw, a historian of Dallas. And he was talking about some things that we're familiar with and how Dallas got to be Dallas. And since we're going to just, we're going to bring up some more uh, uh, things associated with our city here, because we're living here in Dallas. Sometimes people need to know what's going on in their in, in they city and also in other parts of the, of the great state of Texas regarding black history. For Black history is your history. Remember that. Brother Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. What a great day. Information, man. Yeah, man. We're able to uh, 
uh, unable to finish that off, man. But I did want to end with that uh, with that portion of the interview there, and looking forward to uh, uh, completing that interview next time we're on the on the net here. And so, brother Dan, you give me some quick black history facts that you know about, man. Well, uh, some of the things we we we're not too much. Uh, Lacking on because of, you know, the Internet kind of turned us on a little bit more stuff we really don't know about. I can tell you a little bit more uh, stuff about uh, inventors and uh, politicians and uh, statesmen and stuff like that. But uh, one of them, uh, I just found out something as well ago, man. Uh, if this guy, his name was William Benjamin, Jr., and he played with the Motown band. And he was one of the first drummers they had with the Motown, you know. Uh, he was uh, on a whole lot of those hits, you know, like uh, back in the day with uh, Barry Gordon when he gave these sessions. Uh, he didn't let a lot of people play behind each other because, you know, they was masters. You know, everybody was a master. You had a master of the piano, a master of the drums, a bass master, and a vocal master. But all, but what happened, they were so good in a particular field that nobody else could hold the chairs down. That's what they call a chair. Whenever it's like being in a band, you hold the chair. And most of the time, some people come and they'll challenge you, man. They'll challenge you. You know, so you you know you had to make sure, man. You you really were up on your game when somebody came and challenged you like a gunfighter. You know. That's it. Hey, so, brother, Dan, hold that uh, thought he, brother, Dan, hold that thought until next week, man. We got to get on out of here because we try to be timely because we want you to come back next week. We don't want to just keep okay. keep you here, and uh, and not just you, but just our listening audience, and you too can join in the conversation next week, and we continue our uh, month long. Uh, documentary interviews and words of encouragement regarding black history because black history is your history please join us again next saturday morning at the number is 310-982-4126 i want to thank brother daniel for calling in i want to thank the other listener listeners and the callers for calling in and uh remember now you can be a part of what's going on remember now you're part of history what are people going to say about you what's going to be your legacy at the end of your life did you just do things for yourself, or were you able to pour into someone else? Did you leave something behind that someone could say, surely that was a good man? You know, Martin Luther King says, regardless of what you do, be the best that you could do. If you was a janitor, a digger, digger, or whatever it is, do the best that you could do. So the, so the very angels in heaven will say, here lays a good man. He done the best that he could do. We're going to close out on that on on that. Uh, on that little bit of information. And so well, next time we get together, come and encourage me. Come and tell me about some black history that's in your family that you're a part of. And let's uh, let's uh, encourage each other. Gracious Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you, dear Lord. Thank you, dear Lord, for what the men and women have done so many years ago, dear Lord, how we're standing on the shoulders of black scientists, engineers, athletes, uh, civil rights leaders, all those men and women, dear Lord, that push past their own self and their own safety, dear Lord, that we too could have uh, uh, the the benefit of living a life that is pleasing, that is honorable to you. We thank you for the callers this morning. We thank you for Brother Daniel. Lord, we thank you for reminding us, dear Lord, that we have a part of, of society today, the scientists, the doctors, and all those people, dear Lord, they make up, they make up what we are in society as a black race that's gifted and talented. Thank you, dear Lord, for favor. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
come to you each Saturday morning from 8 to 9. A call-in number, once again, you can call in and talk to the host, myself, and any of the guests that we have on this program at numbers 310-982-4126. Until we meet again, be safe, love someone, and in return, receive love. Talk to you next week. Goodbye.